Wait a minute. I gotta give you a present here. Come on, single file over here. Come on, next one in line. It would kill him to say ho ho ho. You were just here. I was not. Yeah, you were. You were on my lap five minutes ago. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Now you're going on Santa's list and you're getting nothing. Fuck you, Santa. Ho, ho, ho. Happy holidays, everybody. Christmas is here and we made it in one piece. I hope you're all able to take some time off with your friends and family this weekend. I'm going to have a busy go of it. I should be good and pickled when it's over. (laughs) Got some special wine for the holiday, planning some decent meals. Should be off the hook. Leave it to me to start the first Christmas episode of Inane with a clip from The Sopranos. It's nothing funnier to me than hearing a kid tell Santa to go fuck himself. (laughs) There's a huge storm system coming through here on the West Coast, which is going to last through the weekend. Look at me. Things are so dull, I'm talking about the weather now. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, so my family up in Washington, they're going to have themselves a white Christmas. I experienced that only one time, and it was in my uh, my first year uh, living in Arkansas. And that was magic. He built a snowman in the backyard and everything. And hey, look, I I listen to myself back when I'm reviewing the show. And besides sounding like a huge grouch, which I'm trying hard to stop, I speak negatively all the time. You know, the, the, the time that I had in the state of Arkansas. It was actually fantastic. Had I stayed in California when I was in my early teens, I'd have likely gotten into some trouble or possibly killed. No, we lived in a pretty dangerous area with a lot of gang problems. So that move to Arkansas kind of saved my ass. It's a beautiful state. All right, lots of great fishing. The people are warm and inviting. They get weather there, actual weather. And uh, I just, I learned a lot of things, you know, about life living there. It was the racism and the inclusiveness that turned me off mostly. Like if, if you don't have the accent, you don't fit in. My family... They all originated from New York, okay? So there was always this Italian, New York inflection on our voices, sprinkled with a little Jeff Spicoli, you know, because the family migrated to California. So when you don't adopt that redneck accent, you just don't fit in. They call you a Yankee instead. Like, fuck off. You know, at least we don't sleep with our cousins, you know? Yankee. So, hey, this might be hard to answer, but can you remember back how old you were when you realized that Santa wasn't real? I mean, not when your parents told you, when you actually realized it. Because, look, let's face it, kids are gullible. All of the elements of the story of Santa Claus are ridiculously unreal. Like, who would believe that a 300-pound fat ass in cotton pajamas is going to make it down a chimney unscathed? And that many houses inside of 24 hours? Come on, man. Gullible's one thing. We were stupid. I think I was 10. I got suspicious because I'm in bed and I heard my mom or my brother putting together my bike in the front room. 
So I was 11. I told my mom, I realized that she's Santa Claus. But here's how dumb I was. We didn't even have a chimney when I was a kid. All right? Chimneys were for people that had money, who lived in actual houses. We rented this small bungalow. I don't know what the hell you'd call it. It had a furnace. So I'm asking, how the hell is he getting in the house? Is he coming through the furnace? My mother, she could, I don't have an answer for that. I just remembered how grateful I was that all those years, my mom, on a very limited budget, would make this special Christmas for us with no financial help from anybody, you know. And she'd give up some of the praise to an imaginary fat dude in a red suit who hung out with deer who could fly. <laughs> I mean, somebody was doing really good drugs when they wrote that story. And it fits perfectly with this magic story of Mary's immaculate conception of Jesus. There's just so much that doesn't add up. But you're a kid, you don't ask questions. So I was having this talk with a friend of mine last week about musicals. I never got into it, but I'd go with Katrina when she wanted to go. And I understood why people liked it. Katrina was really into it. And I was just, you know, trying to appease her. I just can't get into watching people singing and dancing. Unless someone's taking her clothes off. <laughs> you know, then I'm intrigued. But West Side Story, this movie was going to be released. Yes, Steven Spielberg made a movie from the musical, and it was coming out last Friday. And it was getting all kinds of buzz. So the movie opens, and it tanks. The damn thing costs like $100 million to make. I don't know how much it cost them to market the movie. And as of like today, I think it's made like $30 million. There's no way Disney's going to get their money back on that. Now, people are into musicals. That much I do know. Like that show Hamilton, it's a huge hit. And people would flock to go see West Side Story perform live. But for some reason, they don't want to go to a movie theater to see the film. And I know I'm in the minority here about musicals. Right? They're just not for me. You can rag on me all you like. I'll sit through a boring baseball game that finishes one nothing in extra innings before I'll sit through another one of those things. In fact, I'll tell you this. If I ever meet another woman, and that might be one of the questions I'll be sure to ask, be sure to be upfront about, you know, and if it's a deal breaker, I'll get the check. We don't waste any more of our time. I'm just a different person now, I guess. And one of the things about my lifestyle that I miss is running. Because I was a big runner for a long time. And I tried to start back up again this past spring, but I had some nagging injury that started showing up. So I took a break. And then when I was feeling better, I started back up and it comes back again. So for me now, it's just the bike. And I try to do this speed walking thing, which seems to be working, but it's not the same. There's pure joy in running, all right? Even jogging. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up, I was kind of reminded of the dark side of that sport recently when I read this headline. Listen to this. An elite runner pooped down her legs seven miles into a marathon but kept going until the end, maintaining a personal record pace almost the whole way. And I know this happens during marathons, so I'm intrigued. I read the article. Turns out this woman's name is Addie Zariner. She crapped herself early in the marathon, but kept a sub-six-minute mile pace for 21 miles. That is astronomically fast. But she crapped herself like three times. And she, at the end of it, she walks into the hotel. She's got no pants on, no shoes. She's wrapped in foil blankets. She's got crap all over herself. 
And so then I guess she was very open about having digestive issues and still wanting to run, which is you know kind of common for people. And then she inspired some people to take up running. Now listen, this woman didn't just crap herself. She did it three times during that race. Now I've never run like a competitive full marathon. I ran a half marathon back in 2012. And I've run close to a marathon's distance while I was training. I did like 18 and a half miles once just to see how long I could go before I crapped out. <laughs> but not in the way she did. <laughs> and I've, you know, I mean, I've, I've raced in races, 5Ks, 10Ks, the half marathon. Not one time have I ever felt the urge to go to that place. And you want to know why? Because for one thing, I know that you should always take care of that stuff before you enter a race. And the other thing is my dignity is way more important to me than setting a personal best time or a podium placement. You know, running, especially in organized events, it's a blast. It's like the most fun I've had in my life. You're with all these other crazy people who get into it and you're all just kind of having a good time. But running with shit running down my leg in front of a bunch of strangers would be mortifying. And I'd probably never want to do it again. I had a running coach when I was prepping for that half marathon. He told me it's not uncommon for this to happen for some people when they're pushing themselves in a race, especially if they have digestive issues. Now, this is starting to scare the shit out of me, right? I'm about seven, I don't know, seven, eight miles into the race. There's a bunch of porta potties and there are lines in front of them. That many people were willing to kill their time in that race so they didn't, you know, piss or crap their shorts. And I can respect that. When you're running in events like this, you know, it, it gets crazy. And you'll have people that are cheering you on and they're holding up signs to encourage you to keep going. So there's one, this girl was holding a sign that says, you're doing great, you've got this, don't poop your pants. Now, I start laughing, right? But it reminded me that it was still possible. There were a few miles left in that race at this point. I start looking around to see if anyone around me had, you know, shit themselves. Hell, the very first 5K I ran... Right after I crossed the finish line, I looked to the ground. Somebody had puked right past the finish line, right there. Ran so hard, they threw up when they were done. You know, here's a tip. If you're going to compete in a race, eat a nice, you know, carb-loaded meal the night before. Wake up as early as you can. You know, get a coffee in. Maybe have a gel with some water. Within an hour, you should be ready for potty time. That's all you need to prepare for a race like that. And if it's a 5K or a 10K, you need almost nothing. Like I was training in the mornings where I had no food in my system outside of, you know, last night's meal. I was constantly improving my time. It's a little bit of coffee. But people make the mistake of thinking that you have to eat before a race. And that's how this shit happens. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) But getting back to Addie here for a second. Can you imagine... What that must have been like, not only for the runners around her, but the people watching this whole thing go down. Like, imagine you see her coming, right? And she's running by you, and then suddenly she browns out her shorts. That's disgusting. Crap running down her legs. Shorts all messed up. Probably smells like a porta potty. I do not get that kind of drive. I mean, I know what it's like to push yourself and always want to improve your times, but not at the cost of my dignity, man. It's a good thing she didn't podium. (laughs) Imagine 
what that would have been like. <laughs> she placed 30th out of just over 3,000 women, which is respectable. But that's the only respectable thing about it. It's just nasty. So one of my fondest memories of Christmas as a kid was when we'd visit my aunt and uncle's house on Christmas Eve. They lived up in L.A. And all these second and third generation Sicilian families, they always, like, they always lived closer together. And we lived in the San Gabriel Valley. We were about 20 miles away, I think. But there was always great food, lots of activity. We'd stay up late. And I'd usually crash, fall asleep in the car on the way home. And I would make the mistake every year of drinking a cup of eggnog without the rum. I'm a kid, right? So when you're a kid, that stuff is delicious. And I didn't know what was in eggnog, but it was like my favorite part of Christmas Eve. Heavy cream and eggs, I later learned. I also later learned, much later in fact, that I was lactose intolerant. And I'll just leave that there. It's a miserable life, that's all I can tell you. But I don't miss any of that stuff. I'm just happy that food geniuses out there started making things like oat milk and almond milk, all that non-dairy stuff, so that people like myself can still pretend that they're normal. But I don't miss that concoction, eggnog. It's like, a, listen, it's kind of, kind of disgusting. It <laughs> combines what comes from the tits of a cow and the vagina of a chicken. And I smell that crap. I get a pit in my stomach. I'm not a big fan of rum either. The worst headache I ever had in my life came from a, a night with Bacardi. A man watching Tiger play golf with his son, Charlie. Perhaps the best thing I could have seen this year. I mean, let's face it. This year was far better than last year. It wasn't great, but, you know, it was better than 2020. Still a bit of a downer, you know, the new cycle being so bad. Watching Tiger play golf again, which none of us thought we'd see. But doing it with his son at the PNC Championship, that was heartwarming. This kid's only 12, and he's got a really good game. You watch him play, it's like, oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. And get this, in the state of Florida, where he lives, in his age group, he doesn't crack the top 100. That's how much talent there is in Florida right now. I think golf's going to be great forever. And it would be, I would love if this kid grows up and wants to be a golfer like his dad. As you know, Tiger's not going to let him make the mistakes that he made. But sooner or later, you know, this kid's going to find out about this stuff. But even if he doesn't, if he doesn't end up playing golf, just watching these guys play together is enough for me. The PNC Championship's a tournament where professional golfers team up with a, a, a parent or a child. And uh, it was just wonderful. You want to know how good Tiger and Charlie played? They came in second place, just two strokes behind the winners. John Daly and his son, John Daly II, came in first. Man, Daly did not do his son any favors. The kid has the same sloppy look that his father has. Daly looks like a drunk Santa now. Still his big tub of shit with his big white beard. Daly would make golf look not like a sport. He's out there drinking beer, smoking cigarettes. You can't do that shit and expect people to call you an athlete. I heard an interview with John Daly about a month ago. I think he was on his son's podcast or something. He talked about the time he played Tiger Woods in a tournament. And he admits Tiger he'd only beaten Tiger like maybe two, three times in his career. So he's praising Tiger for being as good as he was. Anyway, it was the day before the tournament. Daly's in the clubhouse bar 
drinking with a bunch of other guys, and they're all drinking bottles. I've got like bottles in front of them. So Daly's drinking Crown Royale. Tiger comes into the clubhouse. Daly sees him and says, hey, Tiger, come have a drink with us. Tiger says, no, nah, you know, I'm going to go hit some balls. So two hours later, Tiger comes back into the clubhouse. Daly's now on a second bottle of Crown. He sees him walk by again. He says, Tiger, come on, come have a drink with us. Tiger says, maybe later, I'm going to go work out. Three hours later, Daly's now close to finishing a third bottle of Crown. He's like wasty pants drunk. Tiger, come on, man, come have a drink with us. Tiger now sees how drunk he is and says, hey, John, we got to play tomorrow. You should go get some rest. Daly's like insulted that he wouldn't have a drink with him, but he understands it's Tiger, right? So the next day, they play. Daly shoots a 63. That's nine under par. Tiger shoots a 71, one under. Now say what you will about Daly and his obvious drinking problem, but to golf that well on a hangover his drinking is obviously not a problem when it comes to his game. I mean, I think you'd be pretty damn talented to shoot like that when you're hungover. And you know, we used to do that crap. Drinking beers and smoking cigars while we golf. It's a casual way to spend the day. But it always affected my game and I'd get pissed off. So I'd cut the beer out. But even if you cut out the beer, if you're smoking a cigar and you got to keep it lit during the round, it's like one extra thing on my mind. And I can't concentrate on golf. As I, you know, I don't want to sound like a fuddy-duddy, but I take my golf game serious now. I want to be better at it. I don't compete with anyone but myself, and I play against the course. So if I'm not playing up to the standard that I'm setting for myself, I feel like I'm losing. And the, the group I golf with, we all root for each other. And I got to tell you, it's a pleasure to watch them hit great shots or sink long putts. Someone sinks a birdie. It's exciting. And we don't brag, because I hate that shit. I've golfed with a lot of people who brag, and it, all it does is puts, you know, they're trying to put added pressure on you. I distance myself from toxic people like that. Golf is a game that's played in between the ears, and I don't have room up there for a douchebag who's obviously intimidated by something. Why, I have no idea. We're not in a tournament. You know, these are the same assholes who constantly want to play skins. You know, you bet a dollar on each hole, the winner takes the money. You know, golf is hard enough. <laughs> I don't want to have to worry about losing money on top of that. It's like goddamn gambling junkies. I got a friend of mine and I, we got, we got paired up with these two other dudes once. And there were these cocky assholes who wanted to play skins. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So they start betting, you know, amongst themselves. But these guys, they took it to a whole new level. There were skins on every hole, right? But they were betting on everything. Longest drive, fewest number of putts, closest to the pin, and on almost every hole. Then they started betting on stupid shit, like which duck or goose in the fairway would fly away first. They'd start betting on whether the person that was playing on the opposite green would sink his putt. I mean, serious degenerate gamblers. Yeah, my friend and I were far enough away from these guys. I turned to him and I said, I'd like to over-under on which one of these guys is going to declare bankruptcy first. And you know, I, I, I've banged on religion a fair number of times here this year. And there's a reason for that. It's made certain parts of my life, my young life, not as fun as the parts that didn't have religion in it. I'm going to tell you a story, and I've been saving this one because it is Christmas and it's the best time to share it. 
I can't remember how old I was, but I'm thinking I was around 11. My brother took me up to the mountains the day, the morning of Christmas Eve. There was snow up there, so we're going to go up there and play around in the snow. I don't know why I was dwelling on this at the time, but I had convinced myself that Jesus was going to come back that night, the eve of his birthday. He was going to open the skies and take us all away. I had basically convinced myself that the as-promised return of Jesus was going to happen, and it was going to happen on Christmas Eve. It's a perfect day to do it, right? Born on December 25th, he'll return right before the clock strikes midnight on his birthday. They were filling my head with so much of this end-of-day shit back then that it was all I could think about. And I was pissed. Look, I'm a kid, okay? That meant that no matter what gifts I was going to get on Christmas, I wasn't going to be around on Earth to play with any of it. I got to ask you, is that fair to do to, to a kid? He scared the shit out of me constantly with this talk of end of days, spending eternity in a sea of flames, getting sodomized by the devil on a daily basis. No, you didn't want to go to hell. Fire and brimstone. That's child abuse, right? It's a horrible thing to do to an impressionable young mind. To scare the shit out of him so much, he has nightmares about this bullshit, can't even enjoy the day before Christmas in the snow because he's convinced the world's going to end that night. This is why I bust on religion. And it's one of the first things I had to iron out when I went to therapy the first time. It's ridiculous. People like to talk how we've lost the meaning of Christmas. They say it's more about consumerism now than it is celebrating Christ's birthday. Dude, it's always been about consumerism. That story of Christ is one big tale, I'll tell you that. Just don't torture your kids with the rest of it. Revelations is not for the faint of heart. Certainly nothing a child under the age of 18 should know about. You save that one for Christian University. And I know what you're thinking. What a stupid, gullible little dum-dum you were as a kid, Phil. And you're right. I was. I followed every rule because I didn't want to burn in hell. The joke's on me. I took a course in college on theology. Boy, did that ever open my eyes. My mother wouldn't have any of it. <laughs> I talked about Buddha. I thought she was going to slap the taste out of my mouth. You know, for children, Christmas is about believing in magic. For adults, it's time off of work, making your family happy, enjoying your time with everybody. That's the true meaning of Christmas to me. Let's strip the rest of that stuff away. Just enjoy the people that we have in our lives, you know? I got another Christmas story. This one, this didn't actually take place during Christmas season. But Katrina and I used to visit her aunt in Nebraska every couple years. So one year, it was around September, I think, she was on a mission. She wanted to find an aluminum tree like they used to have back in the 60s and 70s. So she starts searching for antique stores out there. And apparently Nebraska had a lot of antique stores. So we go on this long road trip one day. We've got a rental car and a little GPS box. We drove all over the place. We visit these antique stores. Wahoo, Nebraska. That was the town. That town was gold. She found her tree and then she found a tree turner. It was a stand, had a little motor in it. You put the tree in it and it turns the tree. But then our search wasn't over. Now she wants a color wheel to go with the whole thing. So we keep driving, kept shopping until we found that stuff. 
We put it all in a big box, mailed it to ourselves back home. But during the search, and we visited, I don't know, 10, 12 stores, tons of old Christmas crap collectibles. I remember seeing this strip of lights. It was a string of lights. They were old and had these rusty connectors where the bulbs went in and like frayed wire, no insulation on them. I looked at this strip of lights and thought to myself, how in the hell did people not burn their houses down with this shit? I mean, all this stuff looked unsafe. Every time she'd put that color wheel up and she'd turn it on, my heart went to my throat. Because back in those days, with the electronics, they didn't have the kind of technology that we do now. There were no surge protectors, insulated wire, anything like that. People were putting strings of lights with frayed wire with 110, 120 volts of electricity running through them on real trees that maybe got enough water to stay green. But even if the tree was fresh, one spark was all it would take to light the thing up like a fucking tinderbox. Pretty soon your entire house is engulfed in flames. Merry Christmas. I mean, think about how we grew up in the 70s. We did all kinds of unsafe shit. Seatbelts. If, you, if your car had seatbelts back then, they went across your waist only. How many times did people get in accidents? No airbags, by the way. They get in an accident and your upper body goes straight into the dash, busts up your face. Or if you get T-boned, your head goes through the side window. When we played, man, we played hard, got hurt a lot. We ate dirt and shit. We lived life on the wild side. Safety was of no concern. You know, you lived and you learned hard lessons. But I think about safety now. And everyone seems to play it safe. Maybe too safe sometimes. I mean, it does get a little ridiculous. Like half these kids aren't even going outside now. Life exists on a screen. Well, they'll put these VR goggles on. They'll play virtual reality. They build houses in Minecraft. You gotta wonder, how are houses gonna get built in the future? Get all these kids building shit in Minecraft instead of real life. No one knows how to use a hammer or a saw. Boy, I'm making myself sound old now, aren't I? <laughs> I just thought about that trip the other day and those lights and how much I think about safety now because I've got more to lose. Like every Thanksgiving, we'd see those videos of people. You know, they try to deep fry a turkey outside in hot oil. They don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, people don't know anything about food science. You know, they don't realize how important it is to understand that stuff. So they'll put too much oil in the pot. Don't realize about the dispersion or they'll put a wet turkey in the oil. Cause a boil over, oil hits the fire, huge fire, catch your house on fire in the process. It's like common sense seems to be in short supply around the holidays. People just lose their minds. Yeah, okay, so next week is going to be our last show of the year. And I'm going to try to do something different. I'm I'm going through some clips from various episodes this year. And I'm going to put together an audio collage of some of my favorite moments. So it'll have very little new material next week, but a lots of, uh, you know, oldies but goodies. I used to do this at the end of the year for my life as a foodie, for people who are new to the show, in hopes that they'd go back and listen to old episodes and, you know, do some catch-up. Anyway, I hope you like it. Until then, I want to wish you all a wonderful Christmas this weekend. Stay safe. Please don't drink and drive. And if you're going to have a hangover... Make it a food hangover. From my home to yours, I wish you all a happy holiday, okay? Thanks again for listening to the first year of the show, and I'll see you all back here next week. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) 